in a series um, that we started two or three weeks ago. We'll probably have some of these messages, maybe not every Sunday, but I'm going to work through this different area. And so this, this isn't written on, the, on your um, outline there, but kind of the name of the series, and I shared for those of you that uh, haven't been here, that just a few weeks ago when I was in prayer, the Lord spoke to me, and the Lord spoke to me a prophetic word, and it was one of those strange ones. And it was the word, back to the future. And I'm thinking, now, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the car that you could go through time and things like that. You know, that sort of thing. I said, Lord, are you sure that was there? You know, I didn't have pizza or anything today. So, But I really felt like the Lord spoke to me. And, as, and over the period of the last few weeks, as we've shared message and different messages about that. And again, I'm sorry, last Sunday's message didn't get recorded because when we went to Anderson, we didn't have any way to, re- to record and so, um, sorry about that. You can just ask God to give it to you in a dream at night. That would be fine for that. But, we, but Back to the Future has just been kind of a theme the Lord's been speaking to me about our future and not only who we are now, but going back to remembering our heritage as the vineyard and what's involved in that and just what some of our identity is about and some of what God has, has birthed us in and just really the, the heritage we have through John Wimmer and the vineyard. So we're just going to talk about that. And so this is just a really a very simple message, although uh, if you, you keep up with this, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of good material in here about evangelism. It's interesting, a lot of times if we talk about doing a message on evangelism, or even more than just doing a message, maybe doing an outreach doing evangelism, that's some time of when our heart can start beating rapidly. And it's like, why did I sign up for this? Why did I agree to this? Can I... Can I get a cell phone call so I can leave or something like that? Because sometimes we're afraid of evangelism and we're afraid of, you know, uh, I think sometimes what we're afraid of is being rejected or offending someone or hurting someone or, or that, that sort of thing. And yet the Lord has called us to be evangelists. He's called us to, to basically evangelism has to do with, with, with kind of sowing seed and, and opening up and sharing the word of God in that. And we have, as a heritage, heritage, much of this came from our early days of the vineyard, we have as a heritage for us that the evangelism that was introduced to us by, um, by the vineyard movement, by John Wimber, was what he liked to call power evangelism. And evangelism, power evangelism, let me just give you an introduction to that or maybe a little short thing you can write as far as a description. Power evangelism is to announce or proclaim the good news of the gospel. To announce, proclaim the good news of the gospel. Of course, that's any evangelism. That's what we're doing. And in power evangelism, we're going to take it from that, and we're going to look at different kinds of evangelism very practically and different ways that God speaks to us in that. And as we work through this, and as usual, there's many, many passages of Scripture, and so since you have a pretty thorough outline, I'll probably just reference some of these. But I would encourage you when you go home to, to not throw the sheet away, but to spend time and to read it and meditate on it and let the Lord just speak some to you there so the Lord can just plant in us all the seed of evangelism, the seed of, of power evangelism and seeing a mighty release of God's presence. So we know, first of all, introduction A, that all evangelism is good evangelism. You know, that there's many ways, many descriptions that we can have. Uh, evangelism can be like lifestyle evangelism, that we just are a person that our very lifestyle and what we said and what we do and the way we are, it's just a lifestyle. 
who can you think of that was in this pulpit very recently until they moved to New York that, you know, that was her, and that probably with every other kind of evangelism, but Delana, when she was here, Delana Rimsky, that was her lifestyle. She would wake up in the morning and, or during the early day and she would pray and the Lord would speak to her many times and say, take this amount of money and go to this McDonald's and she'd go there and there'd be a person there and the Lord would have a divine appointment for her. You know, and this happened over and over and I think that, didn't she pray Catholic for someone and that had a problem with deafness and there was hearing that occurred at one time or it's been so many things through the years and now, now they're up in D.C. And so I'm just praying, God, would you just let your glory fall upon D.C.? as now Mike and Delana, and there they are, just bless them. I mean, it's a good thing for our military to have the anointing and blessing of God, right? And, uh, yeah, and Mark said, said amen on that since he's a part of it here. But the kinds of evangelism that we normally think of as um, lifestyle, that just are very, as we said, the way we walk, the way we live. But another way of evangelism is relationship. You know, that we, we find out about our next-door neighbors, uh, there's a book that a vineyard pastor has written that I haven't finished reading, but the whole idea of this book is that it's neighborhood evangelism. It's in other words, it's finding out who lives around you, and actually, instead of them being strangers for 20 or 30 years, actually going over and introducing yourself and having time with them and and do other functions with them and that sort of thing, and just it just becomes a lifestyle, just of relationship and friendship. That sort of thing. Also, evangelism can be events, you know, such as crusades or special outreaches. Uh, we've talked about sometimes things like servant evangelism, if we're, where maybe we are going, and that's, I suppose, in a way, that's what we do at Providence House. It's when we go and we're, we're feeding the poor or we're taking care of those in need and just kind of sowing special outreaches in that and, and serving others instead of just focusing on serving ourselves serving seed in that. So all evangelism is good evangelism, but sometimes some evangelisms or evangelistic um, techniques or evangelistic tools that we use seem to be more effective. And so any evangelism is good, and so we just want to do that. But we also want to look at different ways that we can maybe increase, and maybe for some of these, these are fit, some of these are fit, and some of these aren't. But we all want to be evangelists. You know, and it doesn't mean typical of what you think of evangelists, but we all need to be people that are sowing seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that in sowing that seed, we're praying for God to bring, to water it and to bring fruition to it and to bring growth from it. That's what we want to see, not only in our church, but what we want to see in the body of Christ. Now, we're not all called to be evangelists, thank God. You know, we're not all called to that. Who's probably the most famous evangelist in the world? Billy Graham. I mean, that guy, you know, someone said one time something about, you know, he could walk up, you know, to just about anything, and in two minutes, the person would have accepted the Lord, any person, just because that was his DNA. That's who he was. He loved the Lord, and, and, and his son's the same way, but just the crusades of, of just so many coming and, and receiving the Lord and touched by the Lord. And that's a very special calling. That's almost like an office level. It would have been what we consider an office level calling of evangelism. In other words, it was on a large scale and not just all of us that are called to, to share good news and sow good, good news in that. You know, because in that there are going to be events and crusades and special outreaches and, as we said, servant evangelism, sowing seed, all of those things in that. But we're not all called to be evangelists. In Ephesians 4 
and, and verse 11 talks to us about some of the different ways that, that the Lord gives people. And it says in that passage, and I'm just going to paraphrase some of the things for you. It says that some are called to be apostles. Well, obviously, everyone isn't called to be apostle. You know, and it says some are called to be prophets. It's funny, many years ago in what we called a, a, one of our prophetic errors in the outlet mall, um, there was a, a girl there named Jenna. Uh, and Jenna used to kind of laugh and have fun with things. And prophetic was just really focused in that time and that sort of thing. So she started singing, going around singing the Coke sign, the Coke song to, in the prophetic. You know, he's a prophet, she's a prophet, you're a prophet, wouldn't you like to be a prophet too? Be a prophet, except I'm not singing it. But, you know, she would sing it out and just crack everybody out, uh, up at that. And uh, really we're not trying to mock that, but we're just saying, you know, that, that it's one of the areas we focus on, but we don't want to over-focus on that. Because what the scripture says is that God gave the fivefold ministry. And given the fivefold ministry, there's apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. But we're not all called to be apostles. Thank goodness. I mean, I think there's probably, this is my personal thing, I think there's a lot of people that run around saying they're apostles that the Lord's like, and what was your name? <laughs> not that he would know their name, but it's like, and wh- when, did, when did that happen? And whatever. You know, and, and it's kind of the same thing. That move from prophets to apostles. Everybody wanted to be an apostle. And, and my definition for all of these is that you are what you do. I mean, if that's your function and you're functioning in that role, you know, or you're functioning in the role of healing or, or some of these others are prophetic, that's great. But you function in, in who you are and what the Lord's put into you or what he's putting into you in that process. You know, so there's apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. So I guess I would kick in here in kind of the pastor-teacher realm of that. But everyone's not called to that, but we're all called to witness. We're all called to evangelize. We're all called to, to share the good news and to be friends uh, with, with those that are unchurched. And it's what we've done so many years as we've gone to Providence House and as we've done other outreaches and perhaps in the weeks to come as we outline some more possibilities and things and places to go and do in that. That's so, so important that we do that, that we do the evangelism that God calls us to be, to do. In Acts 1.8, Scripture says that the Lord gives us power to be his witnesses. You saw that when we talked about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that he gives us his power to be witnesses. Now, remember that word was um, literally meant he gives us, you know, his power to be witnesses, which can also be translated martyrs. It's like, well, that's what I thought about evangelism. It's martyrdom. <laughs> You're giving your life up. No, it's not. Just loving on people. Just being kind to people. Just encouraging people. Just sharing the love of the Lord in that. You know, just beginning those relationships. I think that is so, so important. If we can just get out of our shell, ourselves included, and begin to do what God's called us in that. Power to be witnesses. God has given you and given us a power to witness to others and to share to others and to encourage others and to build others up and to release to them the gifts of the Holy Spirit that he has for that. So some evangelism is more effective than others. Power evangelism is a presentation of the gospel, which is rational. That means is that, you know, it, we, it's, it's proclamation, but it's rational. It's something that we can understand, that we can think through, that we can understand and reason as well. And then there's demonstration. It says it's rational, but also transcends the rational. In other words, it's more than just we can, what we can just figure out. 
Because when we talk about power evangelism, when we talk about any of the, of the five-fold ministries and gift mixes that are there, there are some things that happen and some things the Lord gifts in those that we just sometimes don't understand or maybe can't understand. But that's all right as long as the Spirit of God is there and the anointing is there and it's flowing in line with, with Scripture and that we're following what the Lord is teaching, we're not getting way out or things like that, that we can, we can rest in that. We can, we can witness, understand that the Lord is, is good at that. Comes with demonstration of the power of God through signs and wonders, illustrates the inbreaking of the kingdom of God into our lives. All right? Um, in, Apostle, in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, the Apostle Paul's cha- change of evangelism strategy through, through the Holy Spirit's power. In Acts chapter 17, and you can look this if you want to, um, or you can just write it down and study it later. But in Acts 17, verses 16 through 34, the Apostle Paul was on his own, and um, during this time he was in Athens. And he was in, when he was in Athens, you know, the Apostle Paul, if he had a spare moment, that was a moment to tell someone about Jesus. You know, that was a moment to, to maybe come up to a blind person and release healing, you know, or just the, the signs of the Spirit. The Spirit. I mean, that was, that was his passion. That was what he was, was gifted to do once the Holy Spirit had come upon him. He'd been changed. He was a new person. And so he was doing that everywhere he went and all that he could. When he came to Athens, uh, one of the gifts that he has, and we can use the gift mixes that we have. God does that. But he had a strong gift mix of teaching and of sharing. He was a brilliant man. He had been trained under someone called Gamaliel, who apparently was one of the best teachers and trainers and educators of, you know, so, so we could say Paul kind of had his PhD, and he, would, he was trained in new things, and, and so when he came to Athens in 17, 16 through 34, he found that what the Athenians did was that they loved to get together and talk, and not just to get, get together and talk, but get together and discuss. And not just to get together to talk and discuss, but get together to talk and discuss and argue. You know, and, and it's, I think there are still people around today who think the highest form of really wrestling with the Lord is to argue and fight about that. I remember uh, uh, Dino Griffin, who now he and his wife pastor a very, very healthy church down in South Louisiana. I remember the first time that he came into my office. I have a small office on, there on the interstate. And, he came and introduced himself, and he had been a part of, I think it was called a Bible church thing or a Bible church home group that he was a part of. And they were very, very strict, and they, they learned Greek, or at least they thought they had learned Greek, and they would study this Greek, and so they're trying to really prove out every word and every passage and everything about that. And so he's coming to me, and he's, he, he's asking about this and asking about that and all these other things. And, that, that they're because the Lord is touching his heart, but he doesn't know what's going on. And I said, well, you know, I mean, studying some Greek and Hebrew, I said, that's good. I did some of that and everything. But really, if you want to understand what the Lord's trying to say to you, you need to bring it back to a simpler form. You know, it's not just something to get together. And basically their home group was just like these, like these Athenians, where they would get together and they would discuss and they would argue and, and back and forth trying to say, this is right, no, this is right, no, this is right, and that. And I said, instead, instead of focusing on that, just focus on the Lord and what he's saying and the release of the Spirit. And, and so he was filled with the Spirit. We prayed with him, he was filled with the Spirit and, and has become a mighty warrior for the Lord in that. And that's what happens to Paul. He goes to Athens and he's got his intellectual persuasion and everything and all of his points, everything's ready. 
And he starts talking to him, and, and he, even, he looks around, he sees a statue, and the statue's to the unknown God. I mean, the Athenians were so, they were so focused on making sure they covered all the bases they, that they even had an idol set up for the one they didn't know, just in case we miss one. You know, there, there's one there. And, that, and so Paul's going around, and, and he's a very skilled speaker, and so he does what he, one of the things he does. And what is that? He begins to speak. He begins to maybe not argue, but maybe debate, you know, debating. It's like a debate club. And he begins to debate, and he begins to talk about this and that, and they're, and they're knocking items back and forth, and, they're, you know, and this is what they do. It's what it says that they did this every day, all day long. I mean, this was, is this was what they did. They didn't get anywhere in that. And so when Paul went there and he's doing that and he's trying to, you know, use, use what he knows to, to teach them and show them, tries to use it, do it through intellectual persuasion, really what happened was he experienced limited results. He wasn't, didn't receive the kind of results that he normally did when he was traveling, when he was praying for people and people were being healed and, you know, and the dead are raised or whatever else and all. In this group, he kind of hit a wall. And that was because he was facing and, and trying to use a model in this that didn't work and neglecting really a model that the Lord had for him, which is what we call power evangelism. And so um, biblical categories for evangelism, let's just talk about that. First of all, the, the first biblical category of evangelism is what we might call human predicament. Or another thing you could write there, I'll give you actually... Three words there. Human predicament, crisis, and felt need. Human predicament, crisis, and felt need. You know, in times of crisis, in times of felt need, people are open to the gospel. Now remember, understand that they're more open to what we do than just what we say. But I just bet you if there were any evangelistic teams and and, you know, we didn't do it, but if there were any evangelistic teams that were down on the riverfronts and helping and trying to, to help people and to deal with them and deal with the snakes and the flooding and all the other stuff that's been going on, you know, and is still going on in that, just the, the horrible, horrible thing with the flooding that, that took place there. I guess the good news in it is if, it's, if it happens again another 60 years, I'll watch it from above. <laughs> you know, that, and I'm not just talking about the bridge above or something like that. But in, in places of felt need, you know, I, I was just thinking that we've probably missed some real chances for evangelism in the last week. And, of course, feeding people and giving them water and things that the Red Cross and others do, that's all good, too. And, um, but we, we need to be open to that. Human predicament, crisis, felt need can be a pathway for God to use to bring salvation to people. You know? People don't, you know, it's that thing again. They, they want to know how much we care. They want to know that we do care for them, that it's, that it's genuine and, and, and doing that. And that's why one of the values of the Vineyard Movement has always been feeding the poor, taking care of the poor and helping the poor in whatever way that we can in that, helping those that are in prison, different things such as that. All right. Under that, number one, we have the example of the nobleman's son. The nobleman's son, John chapter 4. Look at that. John chapter 4, verses 43 
Okay. I hear somebody besides me that's still doing pages. Okay. Nobleman's son, John 4, 43 through 54. What we see here is this son comes and he has a felt need. He has a felt need that he needs healing, that he needs help for his son. And so when Jesus comes and he's there with him, what does he do? Does he say, I'm so sorry? That's not a bad thing to say. Did he say, I'll be praying for you or I hope it gets better? What does he do? He releases the signs and wonders of the Holy Spirit in the presence of God. And when he does that, not only is there healing that takes place, but what we see is that this is kind of a, something we can, can bank on. Signs and wonders lead to belief. Signs and wonders lead to belief. So when this nobleman comes and he's got a son that needs help and needs healing, then because there is a release of the presence and the power of God, and that's why I love so much our worship this morning, and, and just crying out, Holy Spirit, you're welcome in this place. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. I mean, that was always kind of the foundation. It was one of the messages I did in the last two or three weeks where we talked about that. But signs and wonders lead to belief, even for those that don't believe before or haven't believed before. If they're touched by the power of the Lord or they see their child touched or they see someone else touched, it will touch them. It will change them. We have to be willing, again, to always take the risk, the RSK of faith. That's in that. So we have the nobleman's son, where the signs and wonders led to his belief. And not only that, but the nobleman himself responded in faith. And it says that his entire household believed. So reaching out to one person that was in peril, one person that needed a touch from God, when that, when that nobleman was touched, the son was touched, the nobleman was touched, and then the whole family was touched because they saw the power of God, the anointing of God. You know, someone that, that walks in anointing of the Holy Spirit has a, a big foot up on someone that just has an idea. You know, it's, it's when we have the release and the power and the presence, the heritage that we have from the Lord in that. And then we have, um, uh, he responded and his whole household responded. And then going on to Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 43, we have the stories of Aeneas and Dorcas. Aeneas and Dorcas. I don't know what the, I guess, the, Dorcas is an interesting name. Anybody name their kids Dorcas? I don't know how that goes in that, but that was apparently a, during that time. But Acts chapter 9, and um, verse 32. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and been bedridden for eight years. Now think about this. This guy's paralyzed, and all he can do is lay in the bed for eight years. Now I know that, um, certainly hadn't had that, but I know one of the things that's a difficulty in that is just the bed sores. You know, the, besides the not being able to get up and walk around and all the effect in the, you know, but just, just the, how horrible it was that all this time, that for eight years paralyzed and couldn't get up, couldn't move. And so Peter comes to him 
And Peter had been schooled by who? Or whom? Jesus. By Jesus. And so he, he had learned from him, and he had learned how to step out and to be bold. So it says, Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Boy, wouldn't that be fun? Uh-huh. At our next outreach, you know, someone's there and they're crippled or hurt or some kind of problem. We said, hey, we know someone can take care of that. And we just take the, the leap of faith or the stretch of faith or, you know, just beyond our faith, and we lay hands on them, and they're healed. You know, and then we try not to be too surprised to the person <laughs> that God did that. I just know, because we've read before in Scripture, that God has provided divine appointments for us. He's provided those opportunities. If we'll give the chance, if we'll take the risk, R-I-S-K, risk, that's spelling that we have for faith. So Peter says, Jesus Christ heals you. And then he gives him something to do. And I think this is real important in praying for the sick and in other things and even our own lives. It's important for us when we're trying to release healing or the presence of God or the power of God, the anointing of God or or whatever in that, that a lot of times taking action is important. We see in this scripture and in many other scriptures that as we step out, as we take the risk of faith, that's when there's the release of power. And so Peter says to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Now, here's this guy that, that, you know, he's paralyzed, he's bedridden, he's lying on his mat. That's all he's got is his mat on the ground. And, and here Peter comes up and says, okay, you know, roll over, get up, whatever you have to do, roll up your mat and stand. And when he did that, it says he got up. And look at this. It says he immediately got up. And why, why did, could he do it immediately? Because there had been a spark of the Holy Spirit that had impacted his heart. And in place of, of the discouragement and, and the hopelessness, he had been infected in, in a good way with a presence and the power and the hope of the Holy Spirit. And when that took place, I could just imagine, you know, seeing him grab that mat rolling it up and standing up, and he's healed. Wow. Yeah. That would be good. Somebody would say, that'd be good on your resume, wouldn't it? <laughs> it's good on Jesus' resume. And so he says, Christ heals you. Get up. Roll up your mat. And immediately he got up. And look at this in verse 35. It's one healing, one, risk, one stepping out and risking in faith. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. And so revival broke out. You know, I believe that, that if we will step out and take the risk in our, our heritage and power evangelism of doing what God's called us to do, it, it won't just touch one or two, but it can touch more. You know, word gets around in that. People will call and people can, will, will pursue finding those that are in touch with the Holy Spirit in the presence of the Lord. So all those in Lydda and Sharon saw him turn to the Lord. And then it says in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, in Greek, her name is Dorcas. She, always, um, she was always doing good and helping the poor. And about that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in the upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him at once and urged him, please come at once. Now, you know, this would be, this is the one that's the stretch. It's one thing to pray for someone that's sick or ill or crippled in something. 
It's another thing to call and say, hey, we heard you're in the vicinity. Come and pray for this person. P.S. They're dead. It's like, oh, okay. Well, you know, it's like, we just have to do what the Lord says. So when Peter gets the word, he doesn't say, well, you know, let me check my daytimer. Let me check my computer here. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm all booked up. No. Have you ever noticed that about Jesus and, and the disciples? The disciples, once they kind of got their heads straight, was that whenever there was a request, they didn't dilly-dally. They said, let's go. They dropped what they were doing. And if the Lord said, the Father said, this is what you're doing today. This is where you're going. They said, we're going there. And so Peter hears that. And uh, they ask him to come at once, even though she's dead. Maybe they think she's easier to raise if she's not as dead as long. So it says, Peter went with them, verse 39. When he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. And all the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of this room. Now, it's interesting here. Do you remember in the New Testament, there was another story that was very similar to this? wasn't Peter, but Jesus went into someone, a father had the, the death. And in that, Peter had watched how Jesus did the stuff. He had watched how Jesus prayed for the individual, how he, the whole process took place. And now that he has almost the exact same thing, except it's an older person than the younger, here he remembers how Jesus did it, which I think is always the best model anyway, right? And so he remembered how Jesus did it. And in doing that, he does the same things. They said, come at once. So Peter went with them. He arrived. He was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing Dorcas had made while she's still with them. The first time that Peter was with Jesus and he saw this kind of encounter, what was happening just outside the house? There were people there that were mourning and weeping. There were even they were paid professionals that came to mourn. And so the first thing that Jesus, Peter took in, I mean, Peter went in with Jesus, and they, they're in there. The first thing that Jesus did during that time was he, he ran away all the professional mourners and all those that didn't really have a stake. That's just something they did. They were paid to do. Okay. And so he cleared them out. So in Peter's mind, it's like, okay, this is how, this is how it works. If someone dies, if a lady dies, you know, what do you need to do? He remembers that Jesus had sent him out. So he sends all those that are mourning, and, 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 and it cannot just be people that are paid. It could be people that really care, and their hearts are broken. But when they release that, they release that in the air, and it, it just cuts through the faith. And so, so Peter does that. He takes, it says, he sees them crying. And so it says that um, he sent them all out of the room. And then when he cleared the room out, why did he do that? Because now all the noise is gone, and it can just be him and, and uh, this woman and the presence of God. And so it says that when he did that, he sent him out, he got down on his knees, and he prayed. And we don't say in Scripture, Jesus said, get down on your knees and pray. But if it was my first one trying to raise from the dead, I would probably think it wouldn't hurt. <laughs> you know, it wouldn't hurt of this. You know, you got kind of, Lord, build my faith in this, this sort of thing. And so he does just the way Jesus did. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. Now, I wonder if he said it softly or medium or yelled or whatever else, you know. But he just said, that's what Jesus did. He spoke. He said, he said Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. Now, this is someone that's dead. 
And all the mourners are outside crying and wailing. We lost her. It's so sad. If only, you know, if only Jesus had been here. Well, Jesus was there in Peter. And so Peter's there. And so it says that she opens, opened her eyes, set up. He helped her to her feet. He called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. I've got a present for you. Here she is back whole, healthy. Boy. You say, wow, it would have been great to have lived in those times. Why can't those times be these times? That's what God's called for all of us in that. He called for the believers, especially widows, presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa. Word spread, you know. And many people believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. And that's how he's kind of making his living and ministering there in that time. So we see there that the great move of God and the anointing that comes in that. Okay, let me see where I am now since we've gone from there. Okay, this would be category B. And looking at our different categories of evangelism. Divine appointment. Divine appointment. A divine appointment is an appointed time in which God encounters an individual or group through spiritual gifts and spiritual phenomena. Divine appointment is an appointed time which God encounters an individual group through spiritual gifts and through spiritual phenomena. You know, it's interesting, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, says that God created us to do good works that are prepared in advance. And healing the sick, raising the dead, you know, releasing the power and presence of the Lord... Those are good things. Isn't that interesting that the Lord, when we were created, he created us in such a way that part of our DNA is that he has, for us, created us in such a way that we can be a part of releasing good works that are prepared in advance for the release of the kingdom of God. So what an incredible thing that we see in that. So this appointed time that we have from God, we have the, can have the power encounter uh, through spiritual gifts, and also through spiritual phenomena. Samaritan woman, chapter, um, John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. Uh, I've taught on this um, before and, and not that long ago. But in that particular one, she's there. She's the woman at the well. It's Jacob's well. And um, um, Jesus sends the disciples, and they go off to get some food or something in another place. And he's there alone, and she's there. And they start talking. You know, and it's just kind of an amazing conversation because they begin to talk and share, and he's a Jew and she's not, and they have, there's differences, and uh, in some cases extreme differences there between the culture she's a part of and the culture that he's a part of and who they believe in, that sort of thing. And so let's just look at that real quickly. Uh, John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26, and we won't, we won't read all of that. Okay, start in verse 1. Jesus learned the Pharisees had heard he was gaining to baptizing more disciples than John, although he wasn't. Um, so, he, so he left Judea and went back to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, as I said, and Jesus, tired as he was on the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. 
So the disciples have gone, they're, they're doing what, what he's told them to do, and he's there and he comes to the well and he's tired and he's hot and he's thirsty and he sits down and the well's there, but at this point, um, as he sits down, he needs someone to help draw water. So he sees a Samaritan come up, and understand that the Samaritans and the Jews were not best buds. You know, they were not the best friends. There was a tension there. There was an incredible tension between them. And I want to do the whole message on that. We talked about that in that. And so Jesus sees her, and he asks her, he says, will you give me a drink? In other words, will you, will you drop down, and will you pull up, and will you give me a drink? And will you bring, give me some waters? It's, but the interesting thing here is it gives us a little extra understanding. It says Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Well, Jesus had a choice here. He could not associate and, and really, really get thirsty. But you see, what did Jesus do? He only did what the Father was saying. He only did what the Father was doing. And when he came to this well, he came knowing the Father had sent him to this well. And even though he had a natural thirst, you know, that he needed water, the Lord brought him here for a purpose. And it wasn't just for the woman. We'll see that as we go through it very quickly. And she says, you know, you're, he says, says, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? And Jesus said, if you only knew, I added only, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you the living water. Now that's quite a twist. She's there. She's like, well, how are you going to draw water? You don't have any water. And he says, no, I actually have the water. You know, and he said, and that you can ask the drink from me. You know, the gift, the gift comes from what, beyond what you understand. And uh, she goes on and they go through this discussion, everything. And Jesus t- tells them, says, well, basically, even if you drink the water, whoever drinks water will get thirsty again. You know, there's an entire company that's lived off of that. You know, where you have water bottles by the, you know, environmentalists, I know we're very unhappy. So um, this, I brought this for show purposes. And when I get thirsty <laughs> as well, that. But Jesus said, you know, I've got water. And she says, I don't see water. He says, no, I have water. I have water. And he says, the water that I give will become in anyone that drinks it a spring of water welling up into eternal life. Boy, that's one thing to be thirsting. It's another thing to have the thirst of your life quenched by drinking the waters of our Lord Jesus. And that's what Jesus was offering her. And when she heard that, she's like, well, give me, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and had to keep coming back to draw here. Because he told her that, you know, you, you, you would have this everlasting, never be thirsty again. And she was just thinking in the natural, well, that's good. I won't have to pull this thing up and down all the time. And he's like, no, no, it's not, you're not understanding of that. And so they go through, again, going through a theological thing. And then Jesus uses a word of knowledge. He just cuts to the chase. And he says, well, you're right when you say, because he said, go call your husband. And she said, I don't have a husband. He said, well, you're right. When you say you don't have a husband, the fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you're now with isn't your husband. You've, what you've said is, that's true. You think he had her attention? I mean, you know, when someone, I like this phrase, read your mail, <laughs> it, it, it gets attention. Especially if it's right. I mean, if it's really, really right. If you're going to tell someone that they've had five husbands and this, that, and the other, you better be really sure that that's the Lord. Or you better be able to run really fast or something like that. You know, that's, again, that risk of faith, R-I-S-K, that you have to do. 
But Jesus steps out and he said, nope, the guy that you're married with now isn't your husband. What you said is true. And then she says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. <laughs> like, basically, yep, you're right. And so they go on, and so she brings up a religious thing. She said, okay, you Jews worship over here in this place, and we Samaritans, we worship over, over in this place, which is right, you know? And what, it's interesting here because she's trying to pull off from focus, and this is one thing in evangelism and everything else. People like to get in, in discussions and arguments and not deal with what's important. And so that's a really important thing for us in reaching lost people and church people in that. And so Jesus basically responds and said, well, you Samaritans don't know what you're worshiping and you don't understand and uh, salvation is from the Jews. But he says this, verse 23, a time is coming and now has come when true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is a spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. And when he says that, then Jesus declares, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Because she had asked, she said, I know the Messiah is coming. When he comes, we'll explain everything to us. And she said, I'm the one. And so he, he tells her, she goes back to her village. She tells them she's had how many prophecies? One. One prophecy. Tells her the one prophecy about her husband's and all that other. And she runs back to the village and she tells them this. She learns how to hyperbolize. You know, and she says... Come see someone that tells me everything I've ever done. Everything, all of it, just all this stuff. Well, you know, I, I don't think Jesus got mad at her for that. But it's just kind of interesting how we try to embellish things, all of us. Yours truly as well, that sometimes we do things like that. So we see, again, the release there that can come and, and that came to the Samaritan woman. You know, there was a spiritual gift involved a word of knowledge you know, that he had, because he tells her that she has five husbands, uh, she'd had, you know, and um, the guy she was with now wasn't her husband. And then we, the other next blank, the result was there was repentance and belief that came, and not only to her, but she brought her whole village back, and her whole village embraced the Lord. The whole village. You see, we think touching one uneducated in the, in the things of the Lord person, that person became such an evangelist that she got to her village and she convinced them, you've got to come, and brought the whole village back of Samaritans who don't like Jews, and they came to Jewish Jesus, and they received the presence of the Lord as well. That's amazing. That's amazing. You know, and that's available for us as well. Okay, better, better hyperspeed here, going from here. All right, Samaritan woman, then we have Zacchaeus. Oh, I love the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho, was passing through. There was a man there by the name of Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, IRS guy. And guess what? They didn't like him then either. <laughs> it says that you know, they, he wasn't liked. He was despised because of, of not only did he take taxes, but he probably cheated some, or at least people thought he had. It said So there was a man there by the name of Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector who was wealthy, but he wanted to see who Jesus was, but he was short, so he couldn't see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore, sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. So that's the thing. He's climbed the tree. He just wants to see Jesus. We don't have any more embellishment of what there. He wanted to see Jesus. You know, the crowd's coming, that sort of thing. I think about when we have parades and people climb and they're looking. They just want to see there. 
So he climbs up there and he's waiting and Jesus comes along. And when Jesus comes along, I believe he gets a word of knowledge. You know, and that word of knowledge could have been something like this. Look up. Okay, because he's walking along and Zacchaeus is up in the tree and the father says, look over here. And so he looks over and he sees Zacchaeus and what does he say? Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house. That's a word of knowledge. Where the, where the father released the gift of spirit and said, said okay, look, look up here, look, you know, look down now. This guy, tell him to come, that you're going to stay with him. So he does that, he comes, and when he does that, all the religious people, what do they begin to do? They mutter. They don't like it. What is this? This guy's hanging out with sinners. He couldn't be Messiah. He couldn't be, you know, just all of that. But Jesus didn't care about that. He cared about doing what the Father was doing and saying what the Father was saying. And so he does that. So he comes down, they're muttering, and Zacchaeus says, look, Lord, you know, he says, I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I cheated anyone out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. In other words, he was, he was saying, this is the real deal for me. I'm willing to risk everything on being able to come into your presence and to be with you. And so he does that. So Jesus says, today salvation has come. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And so we see that. We see that where this takes place, where Zacchaeus in that receives the presence of the Lord and comes into relationship with, a Jesus, with Jesus for that. All right, number three, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, Acts 8, verses 25 through 40. Another incredible sign and wonder that we have from the Bible. Acts 8, verses 25 through 40. Let me start, I'll just start reading as you're turning. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. Everyone was scattered except the apostles and uh, throughout Judea and Samaria. Uh, this is the time right after Stephen had, had become a martyr, and so they were mourning for him. And uh, persecution was breaking out through Paul. So, so Philip at this point, um, is, we see in verse 4 that he's part of the disbursement, the scattering. And wherever he went, he would share the word of the Lord. Just wherever he went, even though they'd had to run because uh, persecution was coming, he's still doing that. And he goes, it says, to a city in Samaria, proclaim the, proclaim the gospel there. Uh, the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed and paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And there was great joy in the city. And this is interesting. Most of us would think in our culture that if we were involved and in, in seeing people and that we started seeing these signs and wonders... If, if we were praying for people and they started shrieking and demons started coming out and paralyzed were healed and, and great joy in the city, a lot of people would focus more on the, the weird stuff and like, that couldn't be God. It couldn't be. They'd be writing papers why this could not be God, you know, but it was God. And the people of the city knew it was God because what does it say? There was great joy in the city. Boy, you know, Shreveport could use some great joy right now. So we just need to release the power of God, right? The anointing of God to come and to do that. And just some words of knowledge and prophetic words and just some be healed and those sort of things. It brings some real good news. 
you know, show the enemy trying to drown us that God can, can take care and overcome that and all that we see there. All right, so Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in verse 8, 25. Let's look at that. Um, let's start verse 26. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out on his way. He met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasure of, of Kandaki, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. A man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home he was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. And the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. First, the Lord had told him, okay, you know, this is where I want you to go. So he's going there, and as he's going along, he sees a chariot, and he sees this chariot, and the Lord says, get near that chariot, run up to that chariot. Now, and it's, Scripture says, verse 30, that he ran up to the chariot, heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Now, running towards this chariot, this was an important official, and running toward this chariot, there was another thing that accompanied chariots. And what was that? Soldiers. With swords, you know, you know, with with ability to protect this important person, and so when Philip just takes off running, I mean, I don't think he debated or anything. I mean, when we, when we see this, I think he just said, "Yes, Lord," and he runs up to the chariot. You know, it's just like whatever the risk did that, and when he did that, and I really believe that the release of the anointing and the Holy Spirit and the gifts of God, we have to be willing to take that risk. And so he does that, so he runs up and he, he gets to the man reading in, in the uh, chariot, and he says, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I understand unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is amazing, this important official that's come to Jerusalem because he wants to understand about that. He's, being, he's receiving an, an, a supernatural urging of the Holy Spirit to experience Jesus and, and experience the Lord and what the Lord is all about in that. And yet he didn't receive it when he went there. And so he's going back. And God has a divine appointment because he's seen this man's heart. And he arranges at this place for Philip to run up. And Philip comes up and he says, I'll explain it to you. Because the guy was reading out of um, the scripture where it says it was like a sheep. Uh, it was led like a sheep to the slaughter and a lamb before its shearer is silent. He didn't open his mouth. And what he was speaking of there basically was, was Jesus, that Jesus had just come and given his life for the Lord. And so he could share that with this Ethiopian eunuch. And when he does and he shares that with him, he's so touched about it that he becomes a new convert. And they look down the road and he said, there's some water here. Probably there was some muddy water there. And this Ethiopian eunuch, probably in all of his garbs, gets out and they kneel down and he has water baptism. And I don't think it was just the drip, drip a couple of times. I mean, I think he jumped down at whatever muddy water was there, and he did that. And so he was converted. Again, power evangelism that comes in that. Just an incredible, incredible thing that we see the Lord release in that, uh, that whole process. All right. That was three there. Let's go on to C, power encounter. Power encounter. This is the clashing of God's power with the power of Satan. I always love when I, when I talk about this, and I've mentioned it before, but I, what I remember so clearly, my dad was a surveyor, and I used to work with him. 
and we would, um, using our brush hooks, we, we would, we're surveying, we're the land surveyors, we're always in the woods, and um, really thick woods sometimes. And so we're involved, we're working, we're doing this long line, and we're coming up close to, uh, to finishing a section to go there. And as we're doing, as we're, we're cutting some trees down, because we had to clear the line to, to do that, one of the trees fell over, and, and the person that cut it didn't see, and that tree went over and it hit a power line, and when it hit a, that power line, it made another power line hit the other power line. Well, it was a rather exciting time because I was far away. <laughs> you know, because when those two power lines hit, what took place? There was an arc. There was a flash. And we were just like, oh, Lord, what? I hope no one was on the line, up and down the line. But you, you just saw this flash, and it just went up and down the line. It was a power encounter. And I've always thought of that in relation to this. You know, that's one of the things the Lord has for us in, in praying and ministering to people is the, the, the power encounters, the clashing of God's power with the power of Satan. Um, Peter, Luke 5, 1 through 11, there's such things here that we see as power encounters through words of knowledge. You know, the, they've been fishing all day and they can't catch any fish and they're the professional fishermen. And Jesus talks to him and says, what do you need? And said, oh, we've been fishing, but there's nothing there. He said, go fish here. And they fish, and what happens? Yeah. It ha this is what happens. The boat gets so full that they call another boat to help them. Now, when do fishermen do that? It's usually like, oh, no, they're not biting today. <laughs> yeah, go get away. Yeah, but, but this was a team that was working together. You know, like, help, help, come, come. And they got all these fish because the Lord had touched it, the power of the Lord. So word of knowledge was where to fish, throw in here. And they said, we've been tolling all night and everything else and nothing. And okay, threw it in there. And then it's like, oh, and they get there. Guys, come help us, help us in that, a power encounter. But when that takes place, we see that, that there's a recognition of sinfulness that comes to them at this point because they realize that they're, you know, that, that basically that they're sinners and that they need the touch of God and that, that they need the Lord to release that in them in their own life. You know, and the pouring out of the, uh, that, that we see in that. We see in Acts 2, we have the pouring out of the Holy Spirit the day of Pentecost. We, we've taught on that before. And the results from that, there's power encounter. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit with signs and wonders and proclamation. You know, that now we had, after the Holy Spirit, Peter is a new presenter. He's, he's a new person. And, and in presenting and talking about the good news about Jesus and being bold and not willing, not afraid to die and to give his life for the Lord. As a matter of fact, what we have from, we don't know that it's true, but what history tells us is that when Peter came to the place that he was to be crucified, he said, I'm not worthy to die like Jesus, and we don't know if this is true or not. We do, we do know he was crucified, and that he requested to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel like he, he could be in the same measure as that. Either way, it was still a terrible thing. But this was this what he was doing in that. The day of Pentecost, we've done whole things on that of where we talked about Acts 2, 1 through 41, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and everything that was involved in that, that can release such things as power encounter. Uh, one quick story on that. I remember John remember sharing, and I love to hear in the early days, John sharing about little things that were taking place. And it says this, one day he was at an airport, and as he was at an airport and they were waiting for a plane, he saw this guy, and this guy was, was over, you know, kind of up next to a wall, leaning against the wall, waiting. 
And John said he could, looked on his back and he could see on his back there was a demon attached to his back. And if it were me, I'd be thinking about, hmm, um, let's see, we, we need to go eat somewhere or something, you know, do something else. And so John sees that and he kind of asks, I think he gets the approval of the Lord. And he goes over to the guy. Now, this is what blew my mind. He goes over to the guy because the guy can't see or feel it. And John takes his finger and pushes it right through the demon to the guy's back. Now, now that's probably something you need to really hear from God on, you know, that. But he did that. And when he did that, the guy said, what, what was that? What was that? And he said, what do you mean? He said, well, my, my back had been in so much pain. It was just hurt, hurt. And, and, I, and when I felt this thing on my back, and it all lifted and it's gone. He was set free, just like that. No ruckus, no, no mess or anything. You know, they don't, demon, all, demon casting doesn't always work like that. But it did that time. Power encounter. We see that. Proclamation. Peter was a new guy that presented good news about Jesus. This is B, going down in that. Um, the results were salvations, baptisms. You know, on the day of Pentecost, we feel like there were like 3,000 people converted. Wow, talk about church growth. That, that's, I mean, can you imagine the ladies? Okay, how are we going to get the nursery ready by next Sunday? It's like, how are we, how, what are we going to do, you know? We always think about, they're more practical. I always think about those things and that. But just, there was the release, you know, 3,000 people saved. You know, and then every day, it was instant church growth. There were just, people were doing that. Because why? Because they couldn't help but tell others about the power of the Lord Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit and to, and to pray for people and to bring people and people are being converted and they're being baptized. There's a great move of the Holy Spirit. And we, we're told by scholars that in some of the New Testament churches, there were up to 60,000 people that were members without a church home. 60,000 people that would gather in some cases, just wherever they could. Oh, that's amazing. That's a lot of small groups. A lot of small groups in the process. Okay, wrapping this up here. Um, three, we have apostles. And I'll just let you read some of these. In Acts 5, the power encounters that they had, the healing that they had. Um, Paul the proconsul, um, the different signs and wonders that he had in that. Um, another thing in our power encounters is use of such things as discerning of spirits, word of knowledge and miracles, um, that sort of thing. Uh, thing is very, very helpful. And then the result of all of this, the power encounter with the Lord, is it releases salvation and belief from people being seeing and hearing what the Lord says. Just close here, and I'll, I'll skip that last, very end part. Just close here for the contemporary example. I had some good friends um, at ORU. Um, Larry Stockstill, who has pastored now, I think Larry, this is we're all getting older. Now Larry's son is pastoring down in Bethany, huge church and powerful, powerful church. Larry's a guy that, that I knew there. And there was another guy from ORU named Gary McIntosh. And Gary McIntosh pastors this massive um, African-American church in Tulsa, massive church there. And um, he actually took over Carlton Pearson's church when Carlton, Carlton Pearson became a heretic, basically. But he took over that and he passed her there. Well, these two guys are really good friends of mine that we did a lot of stuff together and uh, it was um, a really, really good time. I remember a story they shared and I close with this. But I remember a story they shared that one time they were in Ghana, West Africa and they were doing mission work and ministry. And um, they came to this village and the village is um, 
chief had a daughter who was near death. And it was getting late in the day and it was getting dark. And um, they had tra only trails to walk back on. And the trails were, were covered at times with very deadly snakes. And your only defense was to see them. And so they realized that if they were going to pray for this, for this individual, that it was going to be risky. But they took the risk of faith and they prayed for this chief and his family and an incredible power and anointing and healing came on them and they were saved. And, and when he did, the entire village gave their hearts to the Lord. And they walked back through the dark and they never saw a snake and they never got bit. You know, I don't know if God's going to have us walk through snakes or not. You might if you're near the red. But my prayer is that we'll get the boldness and the anointing and the wisdom to advance the kingdom that God has for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all these examples, Lord. And I just pray that power evangelism, Lord, any kind of evangelism, but that, that we would begin to step out, that we'd step out in faith, we'd step out in your anointing and release the love of Christ, release the power of Christ, and release, Lord, all that you have. Jesus, I know that in our city there's so many that are already believers, but, Lord, I'm just convinced there's so many that are not, especially the young ones. And I pray, Lord, for children, and I pray for youth, and I pray for the teens, and for so much of that generation, the millennial generation, that, that statisticians now tell us are, are just don't want to have anything to do with religion. But, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just have religion, but we'd have the power and presence of God to break through. Lord, we don't want to lose a generation, not behind us, not with us, or not before us. And so, Lord, I just pray for a fresh release of your presence and your power and your anointing to do the stuff, to do what you've called us to do. Come, Holy Spirit. We thank you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.